what happened last year, right? Just about everything was canceled, and um, so he uh, he's going to be with us. He's been here before. Anybody remember him being here before? Yeah, there's a handful. Um, the Creation Worldview Ministries, he has a website. He has uh, videos that you can check him out. Um, he's very well uh, read and learned, and he uh, goes all over the country. He does a lot of missions work overseas. He's evangelistic. He ties in uh, what he presents with coming to know Jesus as his personal savior he he used to be an evolutionist and uh like a lot of people like josh mcdowell and those who were uh called themselves agnostics or atheists they came to believe in the reality of god well grady mcmurtry is a guy that uh, went against his training to believe and trust that god is the creator of all things and uh, he is um he's kind of a dry sense of humor type guy but uh it is really remarkable his learning and training and like i said he's been over russia probably 50 times very well uh, desired for people in russia to come and hear him speak so we're just really fortunate to have him coming our way um well good morning everyone it's good to see you and glad that you're here glad you're joining with us online am i am i okay are we coming through here? Okay, well, I, I, okay, I don't want to blast people away, especially if I get happy. Um, I'm going to take you to uh, the book of Jeremiah this morning. I, I just feel like God has been drawing me back to some of these major prophets and prophets in the Old Testament and how they connect with what's going on with us now. I think it's amazing when we allow ourselves to think how God is orchestrating things through history. And these people were hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, and they were right on target with a lot of their prophecies. That doesn't amaze us, but it amazes us if we think about the time frame they were living in and how they had such hope. Kind of like the words, up from the ashes hope will arise. A lot of these prophets were in the midst of chaos, and I don't know of a, of a person that had more of a challenge to be the man of God, to be the preacher of God, than Jeremiah. Uh, about a year and a half before the United States was pulled into World War II through the bombing of Pearl Harbor, one of the most remarkable feats in World War II was taking place in the northern shores of France. This was before France fell to the German forces. And a significant number of British troops, along with French troops, had made their way from a German offensive up to a, a, not a large city, but a moderate city called Dunkirk. And that might ring a bell with you because a movie was made a few years ago, not that long ago, to uh, chronicle what is really called the Miracle of Dunkirk. Um, The city has about 88 90,000 people right now it's been rebuilt it was practically destroyed completely in that skirmish Um, but think of this the city that was like maybe 70,000 people had 400,000 allied troops there that had migrated to that northern shore and realized that they were cornered by the German forces and there was no way to evacuate them militarily 
in a way to reduce massive loss of life or a massive surrender of soldiers. In fact, um, Britain really would have been forced to terms of surrender. And Churchill was determined that they would never talk to Adolf Hitler about anything of such a nature. They would fight until they could not fight any longer. But half of that group of 400,000 were British soldiers. Um, there were some Canadian soldiers. The other part was French soldiers. But I, I don't know if you know about the miracle of Dunkirk. Let me just kind of tell you that these men were stranded. They were looking at death or surrender. And the British news organization started calling on anyone that had a boat to help them. Fishing boats, all sizes of boats. So private citizens with their boats to the tune of 850 boats headed to Dunkirk to begin ferrying soldiers over a nine-day period from May 26th to June 4th of 1940. This is a year and a half before the United States was even in the war. They managed to evacuate 340,000 troops across the channel to England and really saved Britain from having to surrender. Now, the th interesting thing was these guys that was on the shores, and they, there was no docks. They were all lined up in lines going out into the water. The boats could get as close as they could, and then they'd go out and load on the boats in the water. All the while, uh, German fighters was flying over them with machine gun fire. They lost a lot of soldiers. But they never got out of their lines. They never ran for cover. They just decided our only hope is to get on those boats with 850 people using their boats. 200 of those boats sunk. A lot of private citizens lost their lives. But they call it the miracle of Dunkirk. And here's what these men were able to see that help was on the way. Help was on the way. And that's exactly what Jeremiah ends up prophesying, that help is on the way. He had a, a tremendous task to try to connect with what was going on in Judah at that time. He begins his ministry 13 years into Josiah's reign. And this was after the revival. Josiah came into power, realized that they were really way off from God's word. He led a, a time of renewal of spiritual revival. But that had kind of faded. And here comes Jeremiah, God calling him. I'm going to call you to speak to people and you're going to be on the outside looking in with them. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their faces. Don't be afraid of their threats. They will threaten you. They will, you will be uh, opposed every step of the way. How would you like to go con uh, pastor a congregation like that? That you'll be attacked every day. They don't want to hear what you have to say. And Jeremiah begins prophesying. And in all of that bad news, he gives them good news. I don't even know if they were ready to hear any good news. Because at this point in their lives, they saw the B Babylonian soldiers outside the city of Jerusalem. And they realized they were in big trouble. I want to take you to chapter 31 because this is where Jeremiah comes out and gives them hope that good news is coming. Help is on the way. And this is an amazing thing. The... The whole thing that happened to Jeremiah is Jeremiah was uh, locked up numerous times. They put him in a, 
a cistern one time. They, they were really wanting him to die because that's how unpopular he was. And when the Babylonian Empire flooded over into, into Jerusalem, the, the commander of their forces found Jeremiah in chains in a prison cell and released him. And this is what the, the, the commander said to him, says, you can go with me. I'll take you back to Babylon. I'll take care of you personally because you told the people the truth. We've heard about you. You were a voice of truth and integrity. And we want to take you as unpopular as you are. I'll take you back to my place and I'll take personal care of you. Well, he turned them down. He stayed with the poorest of poor. And I'm not going to chronicle everything that happened to him, but the closest people to him were killed. And he ended up heading to Egypt and he dies in Egypt. In the midst of all of that, he gives this prophecy in Isaiah 31. I'm going to pick it up in verse 31 if you're there. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Interesting that he said Israel because Israel had long been decimated by the Assyrian army. And this was just Judah, the fading years of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. It's not going to be like the covenant that I brought them out of Egypt. Because they broke that covenant. They broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Well, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. I don't know if the people could really wrap their minds around that kind of a promise. Because the promise didn't look like it was going to be anywhere near fulfilled in their lifetime. It wasn't fulfilled. Not even close to being fulfilled. Not even in Jeremiah. I think Jeremiah knew that what was going on is, is the temporary destruction of his nation. And there was nothing going to stop that. This was the judgment of God. And the preacher who declared this new covenant in chapter 31, as he records this, God is speaking to him. He says, you tell the people I'm going to establish a new covenant. Not like the one that brought you out of Egypt. This is going to be a totally different covenant. It's not going to be an external behavior covenant. It's going to be an internal transformation covenant. And the preacher who was writing this never realized it. The Babylonians, well, they were ruthless. Once they got inside the city, they destroyed everything. They burned the king's palace. They burned the temple down. They burned buildings down. They destroyed the walls of the city. And once the city was overrun, it was like massive destruction and massive loss of life. And yet Jeremiah was telling the people in the face of this, help. Is on the way. It's almost like, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to even talk to people about the virus because no matter what good news comes in, somebody's going to come along and say, but you know, you can get it a second time. And I really appreciate it. appreciate that since I've already had it once. So I can always think about, I can get it a second time. Isn't that encouraging? And it seems like no matter what good news comes along, someone has got a report or an article or something to say, but... None of that is going to happen. 
And it's probably when he was writing this and declaring this, there was probably people shaking their heads. I don't know where you're coming from with that because it doesn't look like there's going to be anything new happening to us than what's outside the walls of this city. So Jeremiah here, bound in chains, was released, and yet he had prophesied this, that the days are coming, what the Lord told him, the days are coming that I will make a new covenant. There's help coming. There's help coming in a new covenant, a new arrangement that God is going to have with his people. It won't be like the old covenant. It won't be like those who came out of Egypt. And you think about all the things that happened in Egypt. He said, there's not going to be anything like that. This is going to be a covenant that I'm going to put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah did not see the fulfillment, but the fulfillment was coming in the person of the Messiah, Jesus. You know, Passover was a reminder of that deliverance. And in Passover, there was always a pointing forward for a coming Messiah. I'm going to take you to Matthew 26 here in just a moment. Because every year after they're delivered from Egypt, every year before the law came, before the, the tabernacle was built, before the Yom Kippur was instituted, before all the festivals, the Passover was going to be celebrated every year at that particular time for seven days. They called it the Feast of Weeks. They were going to reenact that last meal that they had that night, fully dressed, ready to leave Egypt, everything in hand, unleavened bread. They were taking their lunches with them. They were going to leave immediately. And every year they were to celebrate that. Every year they were to enact that. A lamb would be taken, an unblemished lamb, perfect lamb, exact directions as to roasting the lamb, everything about the meal. It was always going to be that night, on that time, every year, a celebration of the deliverance out of Egypt. So every year that was taking place. You think about all of the history of the Jewish people. You know when Judah fell that year? Nebuchadnezzar finally destroyed the city, and Judah was no more. It never did return as a nation until 1948. Israel was never recognized again as a nation. They went back and inhabited the land, but they were never constituted. There was always, after, after the Babylonian Empire, there was the Greek Empire. After the Greek Empire, there's the Roman Empire. They were occupied from the rest of their existence. Until after World War II. But all those years, even during Holocaust, the faithful Jewish people were having Passover every year. No matter how bad things were around them, they were having Passover, looking forward in their minds, Elijah coming and declaring that a Messiah has arrived. Every year they were anticipating this new covenant in Jesus is having Passover with his disciples for the very last time. And we really don't know this for sure. This was to be done in families. Families were supposed to have this. And if you had a, a small enough family that one lamb was, not enough, was too much, then you were to get with another family. There was not supposed to be a lot of waste of this lamb. They were supposed to consume. It's supposed to be roasted. And we don't. We don't know if he had Passover with his disciples every year up at the end. It might have been they were at somebody's home having it. 
This was unusual for them to go to an upper room and have Passover together as themselves without their family members because this was all built around family. Even the children were involved, making sure that no leaven was in the house and the children would go to the door and see if Elijah was coming. It was this family celebration, and, and it was reserved for the home. And here, yet Jesus is with his disciples celebrating Passover. I want to take you to chapter 26 because he, he kind of takes them through what was going on at that meal. Let me just stop here before I read 26 through 29. There were four cups of wine involved in the Passover. We've had a Seder here with uh, uh, Yakad Ministries, and there's Chosen People Ministries that will come in and do a Seder meal, but it's been years since we had that. But there's four cups of wine. The first cup was a cup of sanctification, and it was to sanctify the whole meal. The second cup was a cup of deliverance, a cup of plagues. And it wasn't consumed by anyone, the, the leader, the father, or whoever led. And Jesus had to have done this before he got to the cup that we're about to read of. But he would take the second cup and with a drop in each of the empty plates on that setting would recount the ten plagues, a drop of blood to show that it was a horrific thing that happened through the plagues. It wasn't that they gloated over the cost of life in Egypt. It was to realize that they were delivered out of great sacrifice on themselves and on the people of, of Egypt. And so he holds the third cup, which is the cup of redemption. And it's the cup that the leaven, unleavened bread is, is consumed with. And this is what Jesus said when he held that cup. While they were eating, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, this is the third cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Some translations add new. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There was always hope looking forward. He says, we will share this meal again. We will sit down again. This is not going to be done here on earth, but in the kingdom. When we come back, when he comes back, and what Jeremiah was saying is Jesus is saying the same thing. Jeremiah was saying, help is on the way. Help is on the way in a new covenant. God's going to have a new arrangement with his people. And this is what Jesus is saying all through this. He was the sacrifice, but he's telling them that hope is going to arise out of the ashes of what you're about to experience. And he promised that he would go and prepare a place for them. I think maybe, I think maybe we get too used to our setting here. I think we get too focused on staying here. When this is such a vapor of existence, isn't it? How fast time passes, how fast our grandchildren have grown, how, how fast I got to where I'm, I'm at age-wise. I would have never thought about being this close to 70, but here I am. I'm right here at it. It's went by so fast, and we kind of like so get so caught up in living here that we forget the promise of that he's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back when he gets ready. 
I know a lot of Bible prophecies and, and prophet teachers and all of this. They've got it down to just like almost a science. But this is what I've concluded with, that he's coming back when he's coming back. But he's coming back. He made that promise. He's coming back. And I think we ought to realize that whatever is pressing us here, that it should not command the heart and soul of our, of our spirit. That we have a promise from the Lord that he's coming back. He's our Passover. He said, help is on the way, friends. Zola Levet, um, one of my dad's favorite Jewish teachers, he's a Messianic Jew, and he wrote a book on the miracle of Passover. But he, he notes this. He said, the biggest difference I see between when we celebrated the Seder meal and when we as believers celebrate communion is the tone. He said, for us, Passover was a celebration of victory. We would sing. We would be happy. Right after what I read in Matthew 26, it said Jesus sang a hymn. And we would think, we, for us, we would sing a really soft, emotional hymn, wouldn't we? How about them leaving on that kind of a night celebrating? Singing an upbeat hymn. Maybe even rejoicing as they walked out of the room that the hope of God was being expressed through that last supper. Pre Passover was a celebration of victory. I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 8 last. Because communion is not a reflection of defeat. It's a reflection of victory. Maybe we need to recalibrate how we look at communion when we do communion. And when we have communion at our homes and we have that celebration that Jesus said, I won't drink with you here again, but I will later. Meaning there's a promise there. There's help is on the way that he's got hope that he's telling us about. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews said about the ministry of Jesus and the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. This is in verse six. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator. He is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. It doesn't mean that the old covenant was a bad covenant. It was limited. It was about the temporal setting, about behavior and, and how we acted in life and how we went through the motions it was all about the externals and yet he said there's a better promise because this is not going to be the externals this is going to be internal for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant no place would have been sought for another but God found fault with the people and said the days are coming and actually the writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah 31 31 through 34 right here the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they, sh they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, 
because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And this is this is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. You know, when John the Baptist looked at Jesus and bellowed out those thunderous words, I, I wonder what people thought when they heard him say what he said. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. He was telling the people then that Jesus is the Passover Lamb. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the Passover. You're looking at Passover walking through the midst of you into the water to be immersed in water, to be endued with the Holy Spirit from on high. I I don't know what people thought when he said that. I don't even know what John thought when he said it. It had to be the unction of the Holy Spirit that bellowed those words out of his voice. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover. No more need for two goats. Two goats were used on Yom Kippur. And it was the only day, only time that anyone went past the veil into the holy, most holy place to present the blood on the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, atoning for the sins of national Israel. No more, the veil was torn, no more was that needed because Jesus was the sole forgiver of their sins. There was no repeating of that. I don't know about you, but I think there ought to be a little bit of joy in our hearts knowing that when he paid that debt, it was never to be repeated. If the blood of bulls and goats could remove a sinful conscience, we would have never had the cross. And here he's saying, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And he concludes this by calling this covenant new He has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Zola Levet said, we ought to be so evangelistic with Jewish people, telling them there's a covenant with God that that doesn't have to be replicated in a celebration. You just believe and receive, and you are born again. He talks about us having evangelistic uh, sense toward reaching out to the Jewish people and telling them, But God's fulfilled the Passover. It's Jesus. He is the Messiah. He has been raised from the dead. He is our hope. And I know that when people are trying, they try to witness the Jewish people, they they are, it really can get hot and it can be, um, it can be painful. And I know people who give their lives to reach out to the Jewish people. The permanence of forgiveness, the settled covenant, the arrangement of fellowship, that Jesus through his own blood here is what he, he differs with what Jeremiah. Jeremiah said, help is on the way, folks. It's not going to arrive in our day and time, but help is on the way. God is going to establish a new covenant, and it's going to forgive you of your sins. And when Jesus held that cup and finished, finished that last supper, he was saying, help has arrived. Help is not on the way. Help has arrived. When we sing, and I will sing in the middle of a storm, we're in a storm. We've been in a storm. There's storms all around us. There's so much uncertainty. You know, Josiah's sons thought that the hope of the nation was in political posturing and making deals with Egypt and making deals with Babylon and trying to work those two entities into 
that Judah could survive if we just kept Egypt satisfied and we could keep Babylon satisfied and we just kind of be politically uh, astute and savvy that we will, we will get through this and it was all for naught because God was judging, judging them and there was no hope other than Jeremiah saying there's going to be a new covenant. God is not finished with you. You have to go to Romans and, you know, some people think God is finished with Israel. God is not finished with Israel. Paul says God is not finished with Israel. Israel became a nation in 1948, and God is not finished with them. But right now, his, his work is in the redemptive work of Christ, bringing both Jews and Gentiles into fellowship with him. If you're listening today and watching today, this atoning sacrifice is for you. To remove your sins, to give you a new heart, a new mind, a transformation internally. To have a love for God and an awareness of His presence every day, which is priceless. Would you stand with me and I ask the praise team to come and help us as we finish a time of worship. Lord, help us to be so in tune with the Holy Spirit to celebrate this miracle, this miracle of transformation that you wouldn't give us a set of rules. You just gave us the disposition of our heart, that we're to love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and we're to love others. All of those ten statements in the Decalogue are fulfilled in those two, that we're to love you. And through the new birth, we've been given the capabilities and the impulse to love you. And we're to love others. We're to love the unlovable. We're to love our enemies. We're to, we're to practice the kind of love that you brought. Even when those that failed you that night, you loved them. You loved people. You reached out to them. You didn't batter them when you came back. You didn't remind them of their great failure. there to encourage them Lord there's people here in this room need encouragement there's people watching us that need hope there's no substitute for hope there's nothing we can grab onto that gets us through the uncertainties of life except trusting you and the help that you give us and the promise that you are coming back our world is in such chaos, Lord. Our nation is in such division, turmoil. How we need a move of your Holy Spirit. How we need a move of your Holy Spirit in our own lives, Lord. Lift the despair off of us. Peel away fear. Peel away the pain of loss that people have felt and still feel. Remove the, the uncertainties of things that we see from dominating our minds and bring us back to the, your words that you are here to help us. You are here to comfort us. You are here to strengthen us. You are here to give us power from on high. You are here to immerse us in your spirit that we will receive power after your Holy Spirit 
poured into us. And we would be fearless in the face of opposition to say, there's hope. There's hope for us. There's hope for this world. But that hope is in you, Jesus. We need a breakthrough. We need a serious breakthrough, Lord. of your presence fill us Lord with your mighty power today lift us above the challenges that we have in front of us take us past our limitations into your unlimited power 